You are listening to The Briefing, first broadcast on the 7th of December 2022 on Monocle 24. Hello and welcome to The Briefing, coming to you live from Studio One here at Midori House in London. I am Marcus Hippie. Coming up, German police detain 25 far-right and former military figures for plotting to overthrow the government. We'll have the latest. Also ahead on today's programme, we cross to the United States as Raphael Warnock wins Georgia for the Democrats. It is my honour to utter the four most powerful words ever spoken in a democracy. The people have spoken. Plus the latest on Libya, an update on Swiss politics, and then Monocle's Alexis Self will take us through the brand new edition of the magazine. All that right here on The Briefing with me, Marcus Hippi. We begin today's program in Berlin, where 25 people have been arrested on suspicion of plotting to overthrow the government. German media reports that the group of far-right and former military figures planned to storm the Reichstag and seize control of the country. I'm joined now by the Berlin-based journalist Aaron Burnett. Aaron covers politics at the German Bundestag. Welcome to the program. Aaron, what can you tell us about this plot? Uh, Hi there. So it really sounds like something straight out of a dystopian novel like The Handmaid's Tale. It really is this shocking and that's bad. Uh, The Justice Minister announced uh, this morning that they made 25 arrests and have a further 27 suspects. Uh, Most of those are Germans, uh, but they did also make an arrest in Austria and Italy. And we do have one Russian citizen who has been arrested. Uh, the group had planned to overthrow the Berlin government and install Heinrich the 13th. He is a minor German prince into power. So they wanted to do this through an armed uh, attack on Germany's parliament, the Bundestag, uh, to storm the Bundestag with uh, weapons and to seize power uh, violently. Uh, but there is more to this. The group had been in contact with Russian officials Uh, to establish a new order in Germany once this planned coup had happened. Uh, Other people involved in the plot include a current serving member of Germany's special forces. Uh, Special forces, of course, are some of the deadliest and most well-trained classes of soldiers in the world, uh, no matter what country they serve. Uh, Others were currently serving reservists in the German army, the Bundeswehr. So we're not just talking about... Uh, former soldiers, we are talking about uh, some currently serving soldiers, including some that are very highly trained. Uh, the group is linked to the Reichsbürger movement in Germany, and Reich, of course, means empire in German, while Bundes means federal. Uh, there's about 20,000 people in this movement, and they plainly do not accept the current federal republic, uh, and they seek to restore uh, the German Empire, which of course fell in 1945, including its previous territories. How advanced were these plans? Do we know when this attack was meant to happen? Uh, we are still finding that out at the moment. Uh, the Justice Minister has this morning basically just announced uh, that these raids happened. Uh, they originally found out about this plot in April. Uh, some members were arrested 
at that time for a plan to kidnap the health minister. Uh, and that's when police found evidence of this plot and they started investigating it. So it has been a number of months that they've been looking into this. Uh, we're still waiting to find out just how far along they were uh, with this plot and potentially when they decided uh, on carrying it out. What has been the reaction to this news in Germany? Uh, at the moment, uh, shock. This is uh, all over uh, every German news outlet uh, at the moment. Uh, I think that uh, in the coming days, we may see a lot of um, introspection about the far-right movement again uh, in Germany. Uh, at the moment, the Justice Minister uh, is simply saying, uh, we are going to defend our democracy. This is part uh, of doing that. Uh, and uh, we simply, obviously, won't accept plots like this in, in, in German democracy at the moment. What do you think will happen next? Uh, well, we're going to, I think, find out uh, a lot more uh, about this plot, uh, first of all. And uh, what is interesting is uh, that they've announced that there's a further 27 suspects. So they made 25 arrests here. There's a further 27. Uh, we need to know uh, who these people are, whether there is uh, uh, just where this investigation is going to take us, and also what the, uh, what the Russian links potentially are. Um, I suspect that uh, that might uh, perhaps put a little bit more pressure on uh, the government uh, to perhaps be a little bit more uh, decisive on Russia policy. The public is certainly uh, on board uh, with that, um, but it will be interesting to see if, if that if that goes a little further. And we will also see, I think, um, a, a lot more introspection about the far right movement in Germany in general and just how advanced it is and what it seeks to do. Journalist Aaron Burnett in Berlin. Thank you very much. You are listening to the briefing on Monocle Twenty Four. We head to the U.S. now, where Democrats have cemented their control of the Senate by winning the state of Georgia. Raphael Warnock defeated his Republican challenger Herschel Walker, which means President Joe Biden's party now holds a handy majority of two in the upper chamber. Let's get the latest now with Monaco's correspondent in Washington, D.C., Chris Germer. Good morning, Chris. Good morning, Marcus. Could you bring us the latest? Bring us up to date, please. Yes. So last night essentially closes the chapter on the midterm elections in the United States. Raphael Warnock, uh, as you say, the, the current senator from Georgia, won his runoff race against Herschel Walker. It wasn't actually that close uh, in the end, almost three percentage points, about 51.4 to 48.6. Um, and what this does is, uh, you know, this race was not going to be as significant as as it could have been based on the results uh, about a month ago. Democrats already controlled the Senate because they also had a tie-breaking vote with the current vice president. But with this win, they they are they have a clear majority in the Senate. It's 51 
to 49. That does matter for a few different reasons. It gives them some breathing room in the Senate, um, particularly for some of those sort of more moderate uh, Democrats that have sometimes held up legislation. Um, Joe Manchin of West Virginia is one who is often highlighted in in that regard as somebody who tends to be um, you know skeptical of some of the more progressive legislation that comes out of Democrats. Um, but that said, you know, as I said, closing a chapter on November's election, that was an election where Republicans did win uh, control of the House of Representatives from Democrats. So even though this is a, a, a celebration, a day of celebration for Democrats, that they have a stronger majority in the Senate, that they've actually picked up a seat compared to the election two years ago, it's still going to be a rough two years in terms of legislation, given we will have a divided Congress with Republicans controlling the House and the Democrats controlling the Senate, Marcus. Absolutely. And it was said quite a few times that, in a way, the midterm elections were also about President Biden's performance. How good news is this result in Georgia for Biden? Well, you know, these elections were about uh, the current and the former president, of course, Marcus. They were about Joe Biden and his performance, but they were also very much still about the former president, Donald Trump, and his performance as well. And so I I think what this election says in that sense, it still says rather rather than being a strong victory for Joe Biden, um, it, it, you know, there's there's disaffection with both. Joe Biden is still not a particularly popular president here. Um, what this does say, I think, is, it, you know, these elections were actually more almost about the character of the senators, of the candidates themselves. And Georgia was a key example of that. You know, Joe Biden did not really campaign much in Georgia. Neither did Donald Trump. Both of them essentially stayed away. And what you saw instead was the candidates shine through. Raphael Warnock is, by comparison, popular. He's, a, he's, he's you know, uh, He's preacher at the Ebenezer Baptist Church. He is a very, very eloquent speaker. By comparison, his opponent, Herschel Walker, had a number of scandals throughout um, these elections. He was he was accused of financing abortions for 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 girlfriends, which was something that was you know, especially as a Republican in this environment after abortion was struck down by the Supreme Court, was huge. So I think it's important to say in that sense. If the candidates had been different, this would have been one more race that Republicans could have won. Georgia is still a Republican-leaning state, not a Democratic state. So in that sense, this shouldn't be too much of a celebration for Joe Biden himself, but it is a sign that character matters, that candidates matter at the local level, but then also going into 2024. Chris, we should also talk about another news story now. Let's talk about some other developments about the Trump organization. How much can you tell us? Yes, so the Trump organization in New York has been found uh, guilty of trying to defraud a state and federal authorities. Um, this is a significant development. You know, it is the first time that the Trump organization has been found guilty. Uh, it will be fined $1.6 million. Um, and, it, you know, it's, it's it's a signal. This is this is Donald Trump's own organization, which he has led, which he had led for many, many years. But that said, um, 
he is not charged himself, so there is nothing specifically uh, being attached to Donald Trump at this point. These charges were based on the wrongdoing of the CFO, Alan Weisselberg, who turned state witness against his own company in order to admit, uh, essentially pled guilty to all, to a number of these uh, charges. Um, and we will have to see what this means going forward. There are so many investigations of Donald Trump uh, going on at the moment, including this. There are questions of whether the New York District of uh, the Manhattan District Attorney Alvin Bragg will potentially bring charges uh, related to the Trump Organization against Donald Trump himself as well. That investigation is ongoing. That's what they said yesterday as well when they announced when 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 um, the Trump Organization was found guilty. So we'll have to see whether uh, this comes close to Trump himself. I can say prosecutors in their closing arguments did sanction some, uh, did say that Trump sanctioned some of these practices, even so they, they sort of raised the specter of Donald Trump being involved, even though he was not actually part of the case. That was our Washington correspondent, Chris Jermak. Thank you very much. It's 12.12 here in London. Here is Monocle 24's Emma Searle with the day's other news headlines. Thanks very much, Marcus. China has scrapped its most stringent COVID policies just a week after unprecedented protests across the country. People with the virus can now isolate at home rather than in state-run facilities, and strict travel measures have also been dropped. A third Russian airfield has reportedly been set ablaze following another Ukrainian drone strike deep into Russian territory. Officials in the city of Kursk, which is about 90 kilometers north of the Ukrainian border, released pictures of black smoke above an airfield. And the King of Morocco, Mohammed VI, has called the national football team to congratulate them on their World Cup victory over Spain. Morocco's result means they become the first Arab-speaking nation to reach the quarterfinal stage of the competition. Those are the day's headlines. Back to you, Marcus. Thank you very much, Emma. Libya's government of national accord has said that there has been a dramatic improvement in security conditions in the country and called on major oil companies to resume oil production. I'm joined now by Monocle's North Africa correspondent, Mary Fitzgerald. What can you tell us, Mary? Do you agree that security has vastly improved in the country? Well, I think this statement uh, by the the Unity government um, and the National Oil Corporation um, will be treated with um, quite a bit of scepticism, I think, on the part of international oil companies, but also more generally. It is true that uh, Libya has um, been under a ceasefire since October 2020, a fragile ceasefire. There have been uh, clashes between armed groups uh, during uh, that ceasefire, but not a return to the kind of all-out conflict we had seen different iterations of since 2014. However, uh, Libya remains a country uh, that doesn't have proper national uh, security forces. Instead, it has a constellation of armed groups and militias throughout uh, the country. I think what's um, emboldening the National Oil Corporation and the government to to make uh, this claims that the security situation has improved is the fact that the current chairman of the National Oil Corporation is seen as, as close to Khalifa Haftar, who is a commander in eastern Libya who 
uh, prompted the last uh, round of, of serious national fighting in 2019 when he launched an offensive um, on the capital, Tripoli, trying to wrest control of Tripoli from the um, internationally recognized government. Um, so the, the fact that the, the kind of political and security military connections um, are such at this present moment um, Though it does make some people uh, more confident that the security situation can improve. However, there will be those who say no with the with the situation as it is, the environment, with all these armed groups running around, no national security forces in Libya still quite a, a, a way away from establishing national security forces, then you cannot speak about um, a positive security environment that would invite um, considerable foreign investment. What has been the reaction to this announcement so far? I think that it, there has been a, a cautious response, um, if not outright scepticism, some outright scepticism from some commentators, um, a cautious response from others. You know, I, I think because the news from Libya tends to be overwhelmingly negative, um, some people are trying to kind of see positives in what they consider to be generally an overall uh, negative situation. But I think there will be many um, skeptics out there who will say, look, um, it's, it's one thing to make bold claims like this. The reality on the ground is something quite different. How keen do you think those major oil companies would be to actually resume oil production in the country? Well, their, their production is, is is happening right now. I mean, this um, uh, this call for IOCs to return relates to further operations and expanding operations. And, you know, the majors are in Libya, um, any uh, Equinor, Total, Repsol, etc. So they have been continuing um, operations in, in Libya in recent years. It's just this question of expanding operations to match what was going on in the country pre-2011 and also to match the considerable ambitions that Libya's National Oil Corporation has in terms of future production. So what is the situation? Just more about the security situation in the country. How much is being done at the moment to try to improve it? Well, you have this unity government, the government of national unity, um, which was uh, which emerged out of a UN-mediated peace process. It was an appointed government, not an elected government. Last December, there were supposed to be national and um, parliamentary elections that didn't happen, which has caused a lot of frustration on the part of the 2.8 million Libyans who registered to to vote. Uh, Haftar is still um, in, ensconced, if you like, in eastern Libya. He regularly um, uh, comes out with pretty belligerent uh, rhetoric. Um, but he is seen, uh, he and his followers, and uh, more uh, significantly, his external backers, who have included um, Russia, Egypt, and the United Arab Emirates, um, they don't seem to have the appetite uh, for a major uh, return to, to conflict anytime soon. So I think that that's why we're seeing this fragile ceasefire uh, sticking to, to a large degree, even if we're still seeing skirmishes and clashes between armed groups that are more localized. What do you expect from the future? Do, we, do, you, do you think we'll get more announcements like this, trying to emphasize that it's relatively safe in the country at the moment? 
We're likely to see that because I think some of this is also to do with the fact that the sitting government in Tripoli and trying to shore up its credibility. This is a government um, where basically uh, Libyan critics of this government will say it's time for this government to go. Uh, this government, its primary task when it was appointed was to oversee Libya's path towards fresh elections. Libya has been dealing with a legitimacy, legitimacy crisis in terms of its elected uh, institutions for several years now. Um, so many Libyans would argue that, you know, first and foremost, Libya needs elections and everything follows um, after that. There are signs, however, that this government in Tripoli is is playing for time on this, uh, it, that it, it, it says it wants elections, um, but its critics accuse it of basically playing for time and actually not wanting to give up power. That was Monocle's North Africa correspondent, Mary Fitzgerald. Thanks for joining us today. You are listening to The Briefing on Monocle 24. The Foreign Desk is Monocle 24's weekly global affairs programme. We tackle the world's biggest news stories, as well as those left untold. If actually you speak to the ordinary people, their aspirations is for a unified country, whether you talk to business people, to school teachers, to market traders, and so on and so forth, across the board, is they want to see their country recreated as it was, only this time as a democratic, accountable system. Our expert guests offer in-depth analysis and first-hand experience. In one of the Ebola treatment centres I went to had been burned down by a community that were very resentful and frightened of Ebola, and they still have a bunker in the middle. They've dug a big, deep bunker where they can hide if people come and shoot at them. The Foreign Desk with me, Andrew Muller, is available every Saturday from midday London time, right here on Monocle 24. It's nearly 21.21 in Tokyo, 12.21 here in London and 7.21am in Washington, D.C. You are back with a briefing on Monocle 24. I am Marcus Hippi. We're going to get the very latest on the Swiss Federal Council election now. Christoph Lenz, political editor of Das Magazine, joins us now from the Swiss capital, Bern. Christoph, welcome to the programme. Could you first start by explaining how this election works? Hello, Marcus. I think probably I have to explain how the government works in Switzerland because it's quite unique. It's kind of a, instead of one head of state, there is a team of seven federal councillors who are equal. And for over 100 years, this team has been formed by the same rainbow coalition of all the major parties. The reason is that Switzerland, although quite small, is an extremely diverse country. The nation is not built around one language, one culture, one religion, one geographic entity or one history. It is kind of a patchwork. So the founding fathers invented this team government in the hope that the team would allow for a balancing of all these differences to avoid that one person from one region or one religious group suddenly holds all the power and that the minorities want out. And, um, well, these seven, these seven members of the Federal Council, they are elected for um, terms of four years by Parliament. The next general election will be in exactly one year. But this autumn, two um, Federal councillors decided to step down for personal reasons. And today, Parliament uh, decided with whom they want to fill the vacant seats. So who are the two new members of the Federal Council? Well, there is uh, first Albert Rösti. He's uh, 55 years of age. He's a representative for the Swiss People's Party, which is the strongest party in Switzerland. He's uh, from an agrarian background. He did 
despises the European Union and the free movement of people, but he tends to be a polite and well-mannered um, guest in discussions. So Parliament trusts him to be a team player and to function well in um, in like this team government. And the second new federal councillor is Elisabeth Bohm-Schneider. She's 58 years of age. She's a member of the Social Democrats. And she, just as Albert Rösti, uh, was raised on a farm and um, she still inhabits one. And are these surprises? I'm wondering when you've been in the newsroom as a political journalist, how much excitement and energy is there in the air? Um, at least uh, the election of Elisabeth Bohm-Schneider uh, is quite sensational. You know... Um, I, I explained how in Switzerland the, the diffusion of power and the, the sharing of power within the government play a huge role. So whenever a seat um, gets vacant, there is kind of a national interior dialogue going on about which group should have a go this time. And this goes far beyond party membership. It's about language. It's about gender. It's about how somebody was raised, which profession she has, does this person have kids? Um, and of course, uh, character is very important when you have kind of a team government. And for all of these reasons, everyone thought this morning that um, uh, the Elisabeth Bohmschneider's competitor, Eva Herzog from Basel, she would hold the better cards because um, she's a representative of um, Basel, which is like one of the economic powerhouses of Switzerland. She's quite close to the pharma giants uh, Roche, Novartis and Lonza. And she was um, everybody was expecting her to win because she could bring in kind of this economic background and um, she could help the government to keep Switzerland stay open towards like the globalization and trade with other nations. Just, just finally, Christoph, can you try to explain what this change means for Switzerland now, also domestically and internationally? Well, if you expect the new federal council to swiftly change course on fundamental issues, I think you're going to be disappointed. Nothing ever happens quickly in Switzerland. <laughs> but I think it's safe to say that with the new government, we're going to see a new opening with the European Union. Um, negotiations about an institutional framework have been uh, stopped by Switzerland a year ago. Um, and I think everybody understands that market access for Switzerland is slowly deteriorating and that there is an ever-growing chunk of EU law that Switzerland has to adopt without having a say about it. These problems have been apparent all along, but when you get to change two players in a team of seven, you can probably create a new dynamic and maybe the new government will be ready to give up some sovereignty and accept an institutional framework for the partnership with the European Union. And then what I'd say secondly is what I already kind of mentioned with um, with the competitor of Elisabeth Bohm-Schneider. I think we'll see consequences on, on trade policy, in part because Elisabeth Bohm-Schneider, with her farming background, um, appears to be skeptical of new free trade agreements and that th threaten uh, farmers in Switzerland. So I think... We will not see much uh, on this front, like free trade agreements that Switzerland is currently negotiating with um, the countries of Latin America, with the United States. It's always been an issue of is there going to be a new round. But I think these projects will stay on ice for a couple of years now. Christoph Lenz from Das Magazine there. Thank you very much for this update. 12.26 here in London. You are with The Briefing. 
Enhance the year to come and treat yourself or someone special with a Monocle subscription this festive season. To round out our 15th anniversary year, for a limited time only, there's 15% off with code RADIO15. And finally on today's program, we're going to take you inside the pages of Monocle's brand new magazine before it goes on sale tomorrow. I'm pleased to say that our foreign editor, Alexis Self, joins me in the studio. So, quite a lot to read over there in the new December-January edition of Monocle magazine, Lex, over 260 pages. Yep, our biggest issue of the year, and it's bursting with delights, some wintry, and lots looking forward to 2023. If you want to know what's happening and what to think about it and and you know longer reads about big geopolitical issues things happening in the cultural realm pick it up it's an absolute bargain um which highlights would you like to mention so i'm a bit biased but the centerpiece for this issue is the annual soft power survey monocle's ranking of countries based on how well they've done at promoting their interests geopolitical but also economic and cultural using peaceful soft power means over the past year obviously this past year was a year in which hard power returned in a big way in europe as a as a way of statecraft as a form of statecraft and and here we make the case for uh you know soft power and why we believe it is the most effective form for countries to advance their interests um elsewhere there's a big piece on taiwan another big issue obviously geopolitically we uh, our, our man in hong kong james chambers went and spent a few days there he, he he's been to the country a lot he knows a lot of people there politicians um, and people high up in government and you know this is a big story we read a lot about it we hear a lot about it there's a lot of noise around taiwan at the moment but you know mostly we hear about what what beijing thinks and what washington thinks well here We've gone to Taipei and, and traveled a bit around the island. And, and we, I think, you know, will tell you what people in, in Taiwan think. And I think, you know, above all, below all the, the saber rattling and the noise emanating uh, from Beijing and Washington, this is, is you know, I, I learned a lot about Taiwanese politics and, and perhaps, you know, what the next year might hold for the country. I think that's great journalism kind of offering that point of view as well that the mainstream media may somewhat disagree. I'm wondering obviously Lex I don't sit too far away from you and I always see that you're really busy either traveling somewhere or really busy with your computer doing whatever it is you do over there. I'm wondering what have been your personal favorites over here in terms of when you've been working with these different stories? Well you know I, I have a very um privileged position i think of of working on the affairs pages so so doing the foreign affairs and the politics stuff but also working on the agenda pages which are smaller tidbits and cover the full gamut from affairs to business culture design and fashion so i get to work with the other senior editors and see what they're up to um and you know obviously we're, we're we work together very closely here and you know we uh, i admire my colleagues and their work and 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 you know there's so much great stuff in in december january there's an excellent report commissioned by my colleague the culture 
who, who deals with the culture section, Chiara Ramella from Baghdad, looking at the Renaissance and the cultural scene in Baghdad, you know, with some, with some beautiful imagery there, looking at how lots of young Iraqis who are in the Iraqi diaspora worldwide have returned to the city and are really leading a cultural renaissance and revival there. Um, you know, my colleague Carlotta Rebello from Monocle 24 traveled to Kyiv again for the second time. She's been there to interview the foreign minister of Ukraine, Dimitro Kuleba. It's a, it's a wonderful interview and profile of, of a man who's been, uh, you know, a soft power superstar this year and, and been in the news a lot. Elsewhere, you know, it is the season for it and, and there's an excellent gift guide for Christmas, some wonderful stuff in there and some, some excellent uh, restaurants and food and drink from all over the world. It's it's real cornucopia of delights. All you need this time of the year. Alexis Self, thank you very much. And indeed, the brand new edition of Monocle's December-January edition will be on all good newsstands from tomorrow. And that's all for today's edition of The Briefing. It was produced by Rhys James. Our researcher was Emily Sands and our studio manager was Adam Heaton. The Briefing is back tomorrow at the same time. That's at 1300 in Berlin, midday here in London, 7am in New York City. I am Marcus Hippi. Goodbye and thanks for listening.